Chapter Fifteen of the Raid of Dover: A Romance of the Reign of Woman, A.D. Nineteen Forty, by Douglas Morey Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Heart of the Hill. While the dead were being buried and the wounded removed, there was a long cessation of the savage struggle. Indeed, the long haul in the firing almost led some people to believe that it would be heard no more. Crowds on the western heights glanced curiously, anxiously, towards Fort Warden, with some idea that its picked garrison would now abandon their desperate and daring attempt to hold the position. It became known that the enemy's plans had been in part defeated, either by reason of some official blunder or through the watchfulness of the French at the other extremity of the Channel Tunnel. German troops that were to have raided the French terminus, and then poured into England, under the protection of the guns of Fort Warden, already seized by their advance guard, had not arrived, and could not now approach to aid their countrymen. Movements of foreign warships and transports were hourly reported by telegraph and wireless messages, but the British fleet had by this time formed a deadly barrier of iron and steel around the coastline of Kent and Sussex. There must be a great battle and a great defeat of our squadron before another foreigner could set his foot on Kentish shore. The brooding day wore on, tense with suspense and fear. In the stillness that accompanied the deepening of twilight, hundreds of field-glasses were finally directed towards the silent fort to discover whether the American and German flags had yet given place to the white flag of submission. Any such anticipation, however, proved unfounded. For suddenly, as the dusk increased, the roar of artillery was heard. The masked batteries of the British once more had opened simultaneous fire upon the fort. Instantly the challenge was accepted. Fort Warden roared its defiance. The big naval gun thundered its repeated demand for surrender. The siege guns crashed in unison. The howitzers savagely chimed in, barking as in sudden fury, like monster dogs of war, and fifty field guns combined to swell the dreadful, deafening chorus. Presently the fire from the fort slackened. It seemed clear they were husbanding their strength for work more crucial. Or could it be that they were running short of ammunition? Perhaps, it was conjectured. More damage had been done to Wardlaw's works than the British had supposed. Such speculations cheered the spirits of officers and men. But the wiser among them only shook their heads. They appreciated the mettle of the men who held the fort, realized that they had counted the cost, expected no quarter, and meant to win or die. The British staff knew that it would be folly to cry until they were out of the wood. They realized that many a man must bite the dust in agony before the British standard floated over Wardlaw's works again, if indeed it ever fluttered there at all. The invaders would, and must, hold the fort till their last gasp. Not because they in themselves could cope for ultimate triumph over the increasing forces that now surrounded them, but because to them time was everything— time for their countrymen to develop elsewhere the work of conquest time for the american and german combined squadrons to land troops at unprotected spots of great britain and ireland while they the daring three hundred 
monopolized the attention of the flower of England's troops. The plans of the Allies were elaborate. This was but their first great move. Meanwhile, imperative orders had been given for the British to attack the fort again. The attempt was to be made directly darkness had set in, and it was only to pave the way for a new and even more determined onslaught that the guns had broken forth in the renewed bombardment already chronicled. Troops, regular and territorial, were still pouring into Kent. No drum or bugle note disturbed the evening air. An interval of ominous silence, pregnant with dreadful threats and dire potentialities, preceded the renewed attack. When the hour had come, the word of command, uttered in a whisper, was whispered on from rank to rank. In open order, the swarming infantry battalions crept swiftly up the hill, simultaneously making for the fort on every side. They reached a certain point, then paused under the last scrap of cover that remained available, while the field telephone sent swift messages to certain batteries. The signals served their purposes, and as the guns burst out again, the men sprang to their feet and doubled forward. Those who were advancing from the south stopped almost instantly, dazzled and confused. The powerful searchlight of the fort glared into their faces with bewildering suddenness, and the insistent racket of rifles and machine-guns told them that their advance had been discovered. The doomed and blinded soldiers fell in scores, in hundreds, before a withering storm of bullets. Then, just as suddenly as it had been revealed, the flashlight was concealed, but only to glare forth again on the British supports that were hurried to the front. Thus, brilliant light and deepest darkness alternated in swift and bewildering succession, and through both alike the leaden messengers of death mowed down the advancing troops. Rank after rank reeled back upon their climbing comrades. On the south side, once more, the attack had failed, and failed at a heavy cost. North, west, and east, the result had been the same, repulse, defeat. The night was now illuminated with extraordinary brilliance. Star shells rising high into the air above the fort burst in quick and dazzling succession. The blinding glare lighted up the hill, the sea, and every field and building, revealing, too, the fleeing figures of the retreating force and the prostrate forms of hosts of dead and wounded. A hail of bullets from the Maxims persistently pursued the remnant of the fleeing soldiers, and swept the plateau and the hillside clear of living things. Pom, pom, pom! The murderous machines of wholesale destruction continued their deadly work, until the men who worked them could find no living thing to put to death. Broken and beaten, many of them desperately and horribly wounded, the panting remnant of the attacking force heard, as, at last, they halted, a shrill shout of triumph from the jubilant defenders of the fort. But the night's work was far from finished. The fort must fall, cost what it might. The fort must fall. If it could not be captured above ground in the starring light of star-shells, the attack must be made by burrowing in darkness through the hill itself. Preparations for this desperate and dangerous work had already been started, and much progress made. For twelve hours or more, during what appeared to be a suspension of hostilities, 
the sappers had worked in relays with furious and unremitting energy while their comrades above ground were being repulsed while the star shells went up in rapid succession and the implacable searchlight swept the hill in all directions the picks of the engineers yard by yard were steadily hacking away towards the very foundations of the fort these tunneling operations would have been infinitely more tedious and more arduous had not an elaborate system of subterranean passages already been provided by major wardlaw various cunningly devised galleries had been secretly cut in the hill in order to furnish the garrison of the fort on the assumption that the garrison would be english and act on the defensive with the means of taking an attacking force in the rear and of laying mines for the destruction of any besiegers but the tables had been turned though how far if at all the invaders were aware of these hidden avenues and the method by which they could be made available remained a matter of doubt and anxious speculation to the british staff meanwhile hour after hour deep in the heart of the hill the sappers sweated at their work nearer and nearer they approached to the spot at which a mine if exploded might be expected to shatter at least a section of the fort and open a way for the british bayonets to enter a few more yards and the vital point would be reached then suddenly the sapper who was welding a pickaxe in advance of all the rest paused in his work listening intently he raised his hand excitedly and the officer in command of the party instantly crept forward with an imperious gesture stopped the work the sappers their faces shining in the lantern light at first wondered what it meant but soon enough they heard and understood faintly as through a massive wall there came to their ears the fateful sound of tapping the click 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 of other pickaxes it came from below the tunnel they themselves were cutting one thing and only one could explain the sound the invaders had found out or someone had betrayed to them one of the secret tunnels of the hill the sappers pale as death gazed in each other's faces in a flash they realized the awful jeopardy in which they stood the invaders were countermining at a lower stratum beneath their very feet at any moment while a breath was drawn or glances were exchanged they might explode their mine there was an awesome pause then the officer gave a sharp half-whispered order instantly boldly the picks were at their work again it was a desperate race for time here in this cramped tunnel in the smothering depths of mother earth and no man's life was worth a moment's purchase yet iron self-discipline prevailed the sappers worked with almost frenzied haste and vigor after ten minutes of furious exhausting labor they were allowed to pause the chests of the toilers heaved painfully some of them tried to hold their breath others shook their heads impatiently as if to stop the singing in their ears they wanted to listen to hear and to know their fate no sound reached them it was a moment of agonizing tension then nearer than before they heard the picks again suddenly the sound ceased the invaders had completed their work there was no time to lose a sign from the officer who brushed a handkerchief across his face and drew a labored breath 
a grim-faced sergeant began to crawl back swiftly to the distant opening of the tunnel for the dynamite. Another and more torturing pause ensued. Which mine would explode first? It was an affair of minutes, then of seconds. Their mine was not yet ready, but duty held them to their ground. Though hell should burst upon them on the instant, the flaming portals must be faced. Out in the open, those who watched and waited suddenly heard a thunderous detonation. A huge mass of earth and chalk rose high in the air, and clouds of whitish smoke spread skyward in the full glare of the searchlights. Three engineers, half doubled up, now came rushing from the tunnel to the outlet, bursting among little group of officers, who staggered back with horror on their faces. Done for. Countermind. One of the sappers gasped out the fateful words, then sank exhausted on the ground. "'My God!' exclaimed Helmore, the officer in charge of the relief party, falling back a pace. Then, promptly recovering his self-control, he cried, "'Forward to the rescue! Some of our men may be alive!' He himself dashed into the tunnel, followed by half a dozen men. At a little distance the narrow avenue was blocked. The miners were entombed, but an indirect opening had been made by the concussion, which gave the rescuing party access to another tunnel. Following this and finding it intact, Helmore, in advance of the party, raised his lanthorn and saw in the distance an exposed angle of a massive concrete wall. He understood at once that the exploded mine, working in a lateral direction as well as upward, had exposed the copaniere or covered lodgment under the counter scarp, which Wardlaw had sunk in that position designedly for the protection of the fort. Therefore, the holders of the fort, in a measure, were hoist with their own petard. Their mine had exploded first, but at the same time it had exposed a point against which a subterranean attack now might be directed. The moat circling the fort was twenty feet wide and eighteen deep strongly fortified everywhere a special feature of its strength lay in the campanier gallery the walls of this gallery constructed beneath the entire counterscarp were seven feet thick on this the south side as also on the east the gallery was divided by concrete partitions into five communicating cells or chambers these chambers as lieutenant helmore knew from the confidential plans of the defense works communicated cell with cell by low and narrow doorways from the last of the five cells a narrow flight of steps could be reached a door of massive steel and on the other side of that door a passage five feet wide passed beneath the rampart and the moat into the interior of the fort itself this communication of course was intended to enable defenders of the fort to reach the capaniers which jutted into the moat at intervals and thence fire upon any troops that sought to bridge it the enormous importance of his discovery made helmore forget for a moment the fate or peril of his ill-starred comrades buried as they were in the adjacent debris indeed it was apparent that nothing could be done for them their dreadful fate was sealed and that the faint groans that at first reached the ears of the would-be rescuers soon entirely ceased to be heard. Helmore, after a moment's pause, 
sent a man back with news of the discovery to his commanding officer who instantly grasped the requirements of the situation he issued certain rapid orders and a hundred men darted down the hill in prompt obedience meanwhile the relief sappers guided by helmore crept through the narrow tunnel into which an opening had been forced by the explosion without losing an instant the engineers began to chisel several holes in the exposed section of the concrete wall a charge of dynamite was passed along and all made ready the men rushed back and waited the crack and crash of a violent explosion followed and the sappers hurried forward followed by other troops found that a broad gap had been made in the gallery of the campanier through this breach they crept and crawled to find themselves in the first of the five cells or gallery sections that have been described opposite to them was the arched doorway leading them into the next chamber but already the defending force had occupied it foreseeing that the entire gallery might be rushed chamber by chamber they had brought heavy sandbags and piled them high close to the first doorway against these obstacles the attacking party hurled themselves furiously but in vain half a dozen engineers immediately commenced to break through the wall itself in the hope of thus reaching the adjoining chamber only a few men could work in so confused a space and while they hacked against the wall the german defenders now thrust their rifles between the gaps of the sandbags and fired at random four englishmen fell dead or desperately wounded their comrades dragged them back making room for others the colonel's orders had now been carried out and hand grenades were passed along from man to man these fearful engines of destruction were only to be used in case of dire extremity because closed within these walls beneath the hill the explosives might well prove as fatal to the men who used them as to the enemy for the same reason doubtless the german soldiers engaged in this subterranean struggle so far had made no use of bombs the sappers having found it hopeless to cut a wider entrance through the wall into the adjoining chamber another plan was quickly thought of and attempted a can of kerosene was passed along and poured upon the sandbags then another and another the moment a light was applied the soaked sandbags began to burn with so fierce a flame that the soldiers on each side were driven back and for a brief space the chambers on both sides of the archway were left quite tenantless then with half a stifled cheer a dozen british soldiers their rifles clubbed dashed across the chamber and thrust the burning mass into the inner cell the germans in the opposite entry already were hastily piling more sandbags in position but the gap was not wholly filled when the attacking party rushed upon them impetuously and with an excited shout bayonets cross bayonets now but neither side could get free play either for attack or for defense over the waist-high sandbags in this second archway the combatants with desperate fury thrust and stabbed groans and savage oaths blended with the flash of steel the place grew slippery with blood men fell and could not rise again comrade trod comrade underfoot and heeded not only one lanthorn now remained alight, half revealing the intent and savage faces of the combatants. The Germans seemed to have no light at all. And poor Helmore, 
who held the solitary lanthorn aloft to guide his men, thus helped to direct the fatal thrust that laid him low. With a hoarse cry, one of the Germans had turned a bayonet through the doorway. It pierced deep into the lieutenant's throat. The lanthorn dropped from his upraised hand and fell against the wall. Blood gushed in a torrent from his mouth, even while he bravely strove to utter the last word of command. "'Forward, men, forward!' he gasped, then spoke no more. A young soldier who heard him had marked well the position of the archway, ere darkness hid it, and maddened at the fall of his officer, he hurled a hand-grenade towards the opening. The effect was instantaneous and terrific. The dreadful shock was succeeded by a still more dreadful silence. When a light was struck, it was seen that every German in the inner chamber had been blown to pieces. A moment's hesitation in the face of the ghastly sight, then, as the light went out again, the British sprang into the inner cell to find, or rather feel, that it was splashed and smeared with blood and clogged with spongy fragments of the mutilated dead. Cell number two, by some freak of the explosive, had not been affected, and as the third chamber was thus gained, a sergeant, shouting in the darkness, gave the eager word, "'Forward again! We'll have the fort! By God, we'll have the fort!' Again the men pressed forward, but this time no defenders barred the way. In the distance there was a sound of hurrying footsteps. The Germans had retreated down the stone stair which led to the steel door of communication. Reinforcements had now reached the gallery, and fresh lights were brought. Well might the newcomers shudder and turn sick at what those lights revealed in chamber number three. At the moment it was quite impossible to carry the dead and wounded to the rear. Officers and men were swarming in, and none could leave the gallery. But word was passed along for the surgeons to be sent, and the wounded were laid against the walls, leaving a clear gangway. Then the advance was cautiously continued. Another officer, Carlo, who had just obtained his company, now took command. Promptly but slowly, he headed the advance, for this silence, this sudden cessation of resistance, might betoken some deadly ambuscade. The men went forward, two and two. Chambers four and five proved to be quite deserted. They reached the farther archway of cell number five, and there Carlo, halting, peered down into the darkness of the narrow stair. As he stood gazing, listening, strange and pungent fumes crept up between the walls. He gasped for breath and staggered back. The men behind him did the same. The fumes were rising, spreading, permeating the low gallery with extraordinary rapidity, traveling swiftly into every chamber. Only a few understood how this awful sense of suffocation was occasioned, and some who guessed that it from an air-pump down below the Germans were pumping asphyxiating gas into the gallery guessed it too late. A few, before the gas had wholly overpowered them, fought their way back into the open, but more than a hundred men dropped where they stood in those close chambers, dropped and died. End of chapter 15